Welcome to EM Guidewire, brought to you by the emergency medicine residents and faculty at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Core Concepts of Emergency Medicine. Welcome to this week's Core Concepts, brought to you by EM Guidewire team from the Carolinas Medical Center EM Group. Today we have residents Katie Lopez and Jessica Hoagland, and of course, the star of our show, Dave Pearson. Thanks for joining us today, guys. This week's show is brought to you by Energy Drinks. If your hands weren't already shaking, they are now. Energy Drinks. Now, let's get on with the show. This week, we'll be discussing the dying asthmatic patient. All right, Jess, so you're ending your intern year here, and you're about to get into your second year. I'm sure you've probably already seen some asthmatic patients already, but maybe not the dying asthmatic patient. So let's start with a case. You've got a 15-year-old kid. He's got a history of long-standing asthma, and he's walking through your emergency department doors. He's in severe respiratory distress. He's visibly tachypnic and he's just got this stare on him. You know that he is working just to stay alive. He's sitting in the low 90s on room air. What are kind of just a few things that you would go ahead and get started off the top of your head? Yeah, so that's definitely a scary patient. I guess I would start with the basics here. I want um, IV access, oxygen, put him on the monitor. Some of the other basics I would start with would be albuterol, NEBS. Yeah, well, that's an awesome uh, place to start. I think it's very important just because we see so much asthma to get lulled into comfort with these patients. And it's important to distinguish when you have a patient who is truly the, quote, dying or critical asthmatic. The critical asthma syndrome is technically defined as inability to speak, a peak flow of less than 25% and failed frequent bronchodilator therapy. The reality is, is when you look at the patient and you go, my goodness, this patient might need to be intubated. That's when your red flag should go up and you need to manage this patient a little more uh, differently. One other caveat to, from a historical standpoint to think about is when a patient has symptoms for less than three hours versus those that have symptoms for longer than 24 hours because the less than three hours represents more of a bronchoconstrictive process and those patients can crash very quickly. So be very cautious and aggressive with those patients. The good news is, is they also respond very quickly and well to treatment. Okay, so there is a critical asthma syndrome, but really what it comes down to is when you walk in the room and you're scared that you may need to intubate this patient, they're probably meeting that criteria. And then we really wanna know their onset and duration of symptoms. If it was fast onset, that's scary, but they might also respond quickly. So let's talk a little bit about the evidence of the basics. I, I like to think of it as the everyday stuff we do and then some of these uh, more advanced therapies. So Jess, you briefly talked about some NEBS. So beta agonist MDI, we know that works as well as nebulizer treatment in most patients. Now in this dying asthmatic, you certainly are gonna wanna use nebulized albuterol instead of an MDI. That's, that's pretty much a no brainer. But 
the question then becomes, what about all these adjunctive therapies? So is intermittent versus continuous any different? Well, in this dying asthmatic, don't think too long about it. Go ahead and give them the continuous NEB. And then we know that there is limited evidence for the addition of an IV beta agonist such as terbutaline or epinephrine. Although in a very sick patient that is failing to respond, it is reasonable to go ahead and add on those therapies. Just be cautious with the administration of those uh, meds and I would give the albuterol uh, nebulized treatment some time to work. Yeah, Dr. Pearson, could you give me a little bit more information about how you administer and how you dose those medications? Sure. So they're certainly, depending on PEDS adult, they're going to be weight-based. If you look at uh, adult treatments for terbutaline, you're going to want to give it sub-Q, 0.25 milligrams uh, every 20 minutes. Now, the important caveat is make sure that that's not delivered IV, much like in the anaphylactic patient, where you got to be cautious with the administration of epi, whether it's being sub-Q or IM versus it's given IV, it's going to be a markedly different dose and can cause a lot of side effects. And we know that's a common error. So just be very cautious when we're delivering those medications and make sure they truly are given sub-Q. There's not a lot of evidence out there on the benefits of tributylene or epi. And certainly with epi, most people aren't using that in asthma in the U.S. You'll see that more often used internationally, uh, but they pretty much work about the same uh, in terms of just helping with bronchodilation. Awesome. So we can use beta agonists both inhaled as well as systemically with IM terbutaline and maybe even IM epinephrine. What about steroids? Yeah, so steroids, obviously in this very ill, sick, dying, asthmatic, uh, you're going to choose an IV source. So, you know, an IV solumedrol in an adult 125 milligrams IV is a good starting point. You'll see hydrocortisone used more often outside the U.S. But in terms of that, outside of this patient population of the severe dying asthmatic, for the most part, oral versus IV works about the same. So if you have a moderate or severe asthmatic, but they're not quite at this critical asthma syndrome level, you can do oral if they're able to tolerate it and they're not vomiting. And it's probably going to be more cost effective that way, too. And is that prednisone that you're using, or is that dexamethasone? Uh, for this sick patient, it's pretty much going to be IV solumedrol, 125 milligrams IV. For the you know mo- mild or moderate patients, you can choose other oral agents. So f- specifically for oral agents, yeah, prednisone or dexamethasone. You know, there's there's studies to show that oral dexamethasone and prednisone are equally effective in the less acute asthmatic patient. So in regards to steroids, in our mild or moderate asthmatic patients, oral or IV steroids are both equally efficacious. However, in the dying asthmatic, we want to stick with an IV route of delivering steroids. Correct. And we also know that if we give it within an hour, there's less likely need for hospitalizations in those patients. So early steroid administration is key. All right, DP. So what about MAG? Uh, MAG, there's numerous studies. Uh, The most recent Cochrane reviews on IV and inhaled magnesium, for the most part, just give two grams IV over around 15 minutes. By giving it a little slower, it is going to uh, help decrease some of the hypotension, the transient hypotension that can come with magnesium. It's really going to be only beneficial in those severe or critically ill asthmatic patients. Okay, cool. So we're adding on magnesium. We've got our steroids, we've got our NEBs, we've got our other beta agonists. Now, what about some more non-traditional, thinking outside of the box kind of medications? So this is where the fun discussion starts, right? Because 
the everyday is we've already given all those things, right? We've talked about albuterol, we've given steroids, we've given magnesium, but what about these other things? So aminophilin, don't give it, causes patients to vomit, doesn't help them, probably not worth giving in the ED, reserved for ICU if there's refractory asthma. Can you say that again? How do you say that word? Aminophilin. Aminophilin. <laughs> All right. Cool. Nice. Uh, then we got Heliox. So Heliox, I think the best way to think about Heliox is as a temporizing measure uh, instead of some sort of definitive treatment, right? So you're basically shrinking down the molecules of air, right? Uh, the other caveat is since you're adding helium into an oxygen mixture, you can't really use it in a subset of hypoxic asthma patients. So it's a temporizing measure, hopefully, to bridge you until they get some response from the steroids and the albuterol, and hopefully that'll prevent you from having to intubate the patient. Another medication that I love giving is ketamine for several reasons. One, it's a bronchodilator, although some studies out there show it doesn't really prevent intubation. However, from calming the patient, oftentimes even calming the room so the patient doesn't look like they're in such respiratory distress. I think it's very helpful to control the situation, especially if the patient is very agitated and anxious to help mellow them out so that you can continue to deliver the treatments that you know have the best evidence behind them. Is there any research on giving the parent in the room am ketamine as well? <laughs> there needs to be. There absolutely needs to be. All right. So now we're at the point where none of our medications are working for this patient. He's not oxygenating. He's not ventilating. What am I supposed to do? So now, and probably you've already thought about this and are actually in real time doing this, which is BiPAP, right? Non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. This is really simple, okay? And to kind of explain the basics of this, the most important thing you can remember is IPAP and EPAP, okay? IPAP is inspiratory positive airway pressure. EPAP is expiratory positive airway pressure. So IPAP is for ventilation problems. EPAP, which is PEEP, essentially, is for oxygenation issues. So in asthma, we know we have a ventilatory problem, so you want to deliver higher IPAP. The other thing that you have to be cautious with is you don't want to do a whole lot of EPAP or PEEP because in these patients, they're breast stacking, they have increased endothoracic pressure, and they are at risk for developing hypotension. For the most part, a good number to kind of start with is a 10 over 2 IPAP over EPAP for non-invasive ventilation. Okay, great. So we're moving on to non-invasive pressure ventilation. What we really need to consider is our IPAP and our EPAP settings. In asthmatic patients, what we're worried about is their ventilation. So we want to focus on their IPAP setting, and we don't want to increase their EPAP setting too much because they're at risk for barotrauma. All right, I've done all that. He's at 10 over 2. He's still not getting better. I'm worried. I might have to intubate this guy. Yeah. Yikes. So you've done everything you can to prevent intubation. That's always the goal because, as I always say, you're going from breathing through a straw to breathing through a smaller straw, and that makes it all much more challenging. But sometimes you have to intubate the patient. And when do you intubate the patient? Well, not too early and not too late. Not too late when they arrest and certainly not too early when they're just transitioning to breathing through that tiny straw way too early. This is where I think, depending on the patient, where delayed sequence intubation can really offer some advantages, especially in the patient who is markedly agitated, and you've seen them, right? They're, they're ripping out their IV, they're, they're crazed on the bed. Sometimes, I mean, one time I saw a patient that was on all fours looking at me and didn't have IV, no albuterol was going in, and it's just, it's quite honestly scary. So 
That's a perfect example where I want some ketamine for the patient and myself, but that's also a role <laughs> for delayed sequence intubation. So you want to give them ketamine, one to two milligrams IV, and in this case, obviously, they don't have an IV because they've ripped it out. So you're going to give two to four milligrams IM and then wait till they chill out. And then you can start administering the therapies and appropriately pre-oxygenating them and putting on BiPAP and preparing for intubation at that point. Okay, great. So the patient's intubated. I'm done, right? Don't have to worry about anything else? The problems have just begun. <laughs> and once you add that tube in, I want you to think of two things is what are those ventilator settings? And the other thing is anticipating post-intubation hypotension and cardiac arrest. When we think about the ventilators settings, right, you want to, you basically want to have low pressures, right, to prevent this breath stacking. You want to have a slow inspiratory rate. You also want to have a prolonged inspiratory to expiratory rate. So a, basically a one to four or one to greater than four inspiratory to expiratory ratio. And you really want this permissive hypercapnia. So that, that, that is a very important concept because permissive hypercapnia, basically you're saying we're going to tolerate some elevated PCO2 so that we're not doing breast stacking and having them with increased intrathoracic pressures. You're going to want to do that basically by controlling the respiratory rate and having a slower respiratory rate of just 8 to 10 would be a, a typical starting point. With regards to post-intubation hypotension, the mnemonic is SH exclamation T, uh, not that that is intended to spell anything, so stacking is the S, H is for hypovolemia, I is induction drugs, and T is tension pneumothorax. And out of all of those, when you have post-intubation hypotension and subsequent post-intubation arrest, the most common reason for it is gonna be breast stacking. What you wanna do is disconnect the patient from the ventilator and allow them to fully expire, push on their chest, and hopefully their PEA, which is often a pseudo-PEA arrest, will resolve. If it doesn't, obviously you're gonna do some other concurrent things such as consider a hypovolemia, you're gonna be pressure bagging in some fluids and considering some of the complications of barotrauma and decompressing them from a tension pneumothorax standpoint. Awesome, so we have intubated, but our work is not over. We really need to take careful care to make sure our vent settings are appropriate for our patient. We need to consider permissive hypercapnia to avoid breath stacking and any barotrauma to our patient. We have a mnemonic we can remember for our post-intubation hypotension, our SH, exclamation mark T, stacking hypovolemia, induction drugs, and tension pneumothorax. All right, so he's intubated. This kid is still not getting any better. Any Hail Marys you got in your pocket, DP? Well, when you think about the severe dying asthmatic, it certainly can be from a hypoxic event, but often it's also from just profound acidosis. And you're actually adjusting your ventilator settings to try to target a pH of 7.2. So you're allowing some permissive hypercapnia. But once you've exhausted all that and you have nowhere to go, then you need to start thinking about inhaled anesthetics and VV ECMO because that's going to, one, inhaled anesthetics or some literature to support that that's going to help with all that bronchospasm. And then with ECMO, you're basically just putting them on essentially bypass. So you're giving the lungs some rest time. And, and both of those things are going to really help with the acidosis issue. Okay. So if we're still having trouble managing this patient, despite all of our previous efforts, some things to have in our back pocket are VV ECMO and possibly inhaled anesthetics to help with bronchodilation. Keeping in mind that while we are allowing for permissive hypercapnia, most patients in this population will die of acidosis and not hypoxemia. 
I know I'm going to want to be talking to my PICU and MICU colleagues when I'm making any of these decisions, but I'm going to make sure that wherever I work next, I know what the options are at my facility, including any inhaled anesthetics or ECMO availability. Dr. Pearson, it's been a pleasure having you in the studios. It's been fun. Thank you. We're going to just review a few core concepts we covered today. So start with the basics, NEBS, steroids, and MAG. Remember what you got in your back pocket, heliox, ketamine, non-invasive pressure ventilation. When it comes to intubation, don't do it too early, don't do it too late. Consider delayed sequence and rapid sequence intubation. Post-intubation, remember to manage your vents carefully, including your IDE ratio, avoiding barotrauma. With your post-intubation hypotension mnemonic, SH exclamation mark T, remember stacking, hypovolemia, induction drugs, and tension pneumothorax. Know what Hail Marys are available at your hospital, including inhaled anesthetics or VV ECMO. Thanks again for the discussion, team. From the J. Lee Garvey Innovation Studios here in Charlotte, North Carolina, this is EM Guidewire. Thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go! Be awesome today! CMC out!